Hey there, friends. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to invite you to our next Collaboration Zone Zoom party. This is a free Zoom chat get together with all of my entrepreneur friends in the Rise and Recovery Network, where we can share mind and business growth tips, strategies, and you get to network with other entrepreneurs of all experience levels. So if you want to level up your business and get connected, book your spot today. Head on over to www. The road forward slash collaboration zone. When we recover, we are returning to a normal state of health, mind, or strength. We begin the process of regaining control over something that was lost. Welcome to the Road Beyond Recovery podcast, and my name is Tamar, your host. Have you ever felt like you were meant for more? Well, I help people discover their purpose so they can follow their passion and realize what they are truly capable of. My mission is to empower people in recovery to embrace their authentic selves, live up to their true potential, and answer the question, what lies beyond recovery for you? Hey guys, Tamar here from the Road Beyond Recovery podcast. Thank you so much for joining me again today. And I am super pumped because today we're chatting with my friend Russell Beebe from Wellness Seekers Unlimited. And I'm excited because Russell and I actually took a personal development program. Uh, That's how we met each other a couple years ago, and it really pushed us both outside of our comfort zone. And we had connected after because we were on very similar missions. Uh, We both have that um, history of addiction. So I am excited that he's on the show today and he's going to be able to share his story with you and how he got involved in the mental health addiction field and what led him to actually getting out of that. So we're going to be chatting about that and a lot more today. But before we get into that, you know, if you haven't already, make sure you come join us at one of our Collaboration Zone Zoom calls. These happen every second week on Thursday, our alternate time zone so that everybody can make it. But basically we open up with 10 minutes of training on beliefs, mindset, and the brain science of growth, right? So you're actually going to use some evidence-based framework that I teach. um, So you get some value in the beginning of the call. Then we do a speed connection round, which is an intro of who you are, what services you provide, you know, who you serve, and you can ask for connections, favors, feedback to overcome any roadblocks that you might be facing. This is a really great opportunity to network with other like-minded individuals. Then we end the call off with 10 minutes of hot seats where you can volunteer to share with the group one of the roadblocks that you might be facing and they have an opportunity to pitch in and share with you how they have overcome those specific roadblocks. We also do member training. So if you're somebody that wants to get in there and teach something that you're passionate about. If you can do a little 10 minute section, let me know, but would love to have you on the call. You can register at www.theroadforward.ca slash collaboration zone. And if that was too fast for you, you can always go to the show notes and the link will be there for you to click on. All right, let's get into today's episode where we're chatting with my good friend, Russell Beebe from Wellness Seekers Unlimited. 
Now, Russell shares his story, which is the first time I've heard his whole story, which is absolutely incredible. Uh, we talk about what led him to want to get involved in the industry of mental health and addiction as a clinician. And then we also talk about, you know, how there's a lot of overwhelm in that industry, right? And in the addiction field. I think a lot of people who get clean and sober, they learn, you know, that they get a lot of joy out of helping other people. And so they jump into it. You know, it's it's very common for people who come into recovery to become counselors and social workers in that field. But we talk about the overwhelm, the burnout that he faced and what actually made him switch from wanting to be a clinician to actually going into the coaching area, right? Because the reality is a lot of people who come into recovery don't always want to be there. So Russell shares his experience around that. And we talk about so, so much more. So enjoy this episode. Welcome back, everybody. I'm hanging out with my friend, Russell Beebe from Wellness Seekers Unlimited. How are you? I'm good. I'm good, Tamar. How are you? I'm good. I'm super excited that I finally get you on the show because I think we met probably over a year ago now. Yeah, I and think so. uh, it's going to be exciting to hear your story. So why don't you just start off kind of who you are, what you do today, and then we're going to dig into the past a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my name's Russell Beebe. Um, and I, my, my current vocation, um, is working with wellness coaches, burnt out, overwhelmed mental health professionals that want to move into coaching so they can leverage a coaching model so they can, they can continue helping people and, and drawing upon their expertise with that, but have a, a better balanced life. Um, and that's essentially what I do in my own coaching program. Um, that's kind of the gist of my, what I currently do. Um, and yeah, that's, that's my, my thing. I'm in recovery. <clears throat> I love recovery. I love the 12 steps. I love the spiritual side of recovery, um, and, and all the amazing things it, it brings into my life. Um, over the years. And um, so talking to you is an a, a appropriate thing to be doing here on uh, a Tuesday at one o'clock. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, it's I think what you're doing is definitely needed because we'll get into it a little bit later. But there is a lot of burnout in the industry, right? There's a lot of people who get into it because they realize that being sober is a gift. And they want to help other people do that, but they don't realize sometimes the consequences that come along with that stuff. But, you know, I, I always like to start off with, you know, kind of for me, um, when I share my story, I share about the fact that I had a good upbringing. Now, I know that that's not the Mm -hmm. same for everybody, but there's, there seems to be this, like this perception of you have to have gone through a traumatic childhood to become an alcoholic or an addict. Um, But for me, that wasn't the case, right? When I first got drunk, I fell in love. And that's how my journey started. But it's not the same for everybody. So what was life growing up for you? Kind of what led to that point where you kind of embarked on the journey of addiction? Yeah. And um, so I, I too fall under that category of, I wish I could sit here and be and identify a horrific traumatic upbringing that 
is to blame or not to blame, but contributed to, you know, where you'd look at me and be like, of course he started drinking and doing drugs. You know what I mean? But I grew up in a suburban town outside of Boston. Mom and dad worked together. Neither of them even smoked cigarettes. Neither of them even said swear words. Um, you know what I mean? Dad had a, had a great job. Um, I never worried about where, you know, eat, where I was going to, when I was going to eat, what I was going to eat. You know, we had, uh, not a lavish lifestyle, but I was, I was, you know, and they were very loving. My dad was there for me when I had questions. My mom was, you know, um, although there was, there is addiction in my family. And, um, for me that came in the form of my, my older brother. Um, and, but anyway, so I, I don't have that experience of like horrific trauma in my past. Um, you know, there's little things that I can identify, like my parents, um, you know, did things for me, cleaned up my, cleaned up after me and stuff like that, but it was all out of love. And, you know, so there was some, some, if I was to like squeeze some kind of thing out of my upbringing would have been that I didn't, didn't learn how to kind of do things for myself. And that was a bit of a shock as I moved into adulthood. Um, but that's all that I could come up with. So, but I, I like you, I do remember, so, and this is, does not related to my upbringing or anything, but I do remember feeling uncomfortable, restless, irritable, and discontent. They talk about pretty early on. And then in middle school, feeling um, anxiety, some depression. And then I didn't actually take my first drink or drug until I was 16. As soon as I did, I was like, this is awesome. And it was kind of all over from there. Um, and so I had the same experience. I loved the way it made me feel. And it took away some of that pain that I had been experiencing in the short period of my life so far. And so it kind of progressed from there. Does that make sense? <clears throat> You're sharing my story to a yeah. T, right? And that's why I like to bring that up. Because a lot of people, you know, my dad even was like, well, you didn't get that from me. I'm like, it's not something you really yeah. catch. But <clears throat> addiction ran in my family, right? Yeah. And, and it was just something that when I had my first drink, I fell in love. I was like, like you said, I'm like, this is awesome. Like my yeah. world went from black and white to color and I felt in control mm -hmm. and funny. And it was how it made me feel, right? I, I, well, I didn't have to feel anymore. So, you know, f for myself, I missed a lot of opportunities in my life because of drugs and alcohol. Um, what was kind of that journey for you in early addiction? Like, and how did it progress? Yeah, God, it's so interesting that you're 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 asking me this because um, I've been reflecting a lot on this lately, and part of it is that I I'm a, a I'm a a, a counselor and a, and a licensed therapist and I haven't done therapy myself in, in, a, in a lot of years and I'm really strong in my recovery and I started doing some therapy recently and and this is related to your question um, this interesting thing happened where um, I'm I before I got into the helping field um, I was a musician I'm a French horn player I took I, I worked very hard from grade five all the way up through my undergrad and graduate school for music to become a professional musician and i'm in therapy and i i i've now not doing it seriously it's more of a like a, as i do it as as an amateur but i'm in therapy right now and all these issues 
that like I'm working on some things in therapy and they seem to all go back to the horn playing for some reason. Um, And I was like really hit even just like last week with some pain and guilt around never fulfilling on my dream with music to the extent that I wanted to. Um, And so the reason I'm saying that is when I started drinking and drugging in high school, um, it really started to affect my ability to be consistent the way that I needed to in my music endeavors to actually be successful. And as that, it progressed through high school and I was, you know, I played in youth orchestra when I got to college, I was doing well, you know, um, but there was always, I was always held back by the hangover and the not being out, being able to get out of bed in the morning. And eventually that I got through my undergrad in music, but I was, my growth in that area was very stunted by my, my addiction. Um, and I never fulfilled on that. And I, I let, I sort of let the horn go in graduate school. Um, and when I look back at that, it was all because of the fact, not just that I was drinking and drugging and, and the chaos that that created, but it was this inability that I had to sort of manage my life in a consistent way, sober, so that I could, on a daily basis, progress towards the goals and dreams that I have in my life. So that's the, the biggest, whether it was the music or something else, what, what held me back was an, just an inability to be consistent in my life in order to, to you know, fulfill on my dreams and hopes and dreams uh, in my life. So that was the biggest effect other than the obvious, like gory stories that everybody has in recovery of, of how drinking and drugging, you know, bad things happen out there. Um, it was really that like not being able to fulfill on, you know, what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah. And I think that is probably one of the biggest drivers for me today is I felt like, you know, I don't, I, I, Today, I look at the time as life training, right? If I didn't have that, I wouldn't be doing what I've done today. But I do feel like because there was opportunities, you know, I was I had gotten drafted to be on our provincial soccer team, our women's soccer team, and I was hung over. So I didn't go. And I think part of me now today looks at that and goes, okay, well, I don't want to miss out on those opportunities anymore. So I'm going to work as hard as I can, which is a whole other set of things that I have to work on because I also go all in for everything. But, you know, yeah. when it came to your addiction, when did when did things get really bad? Like, what did that look like for you? I mean, I think I think it was um, kind of a weird version of fun and games until about my freshman year in my undergrad because I, a funny thing happens when you go away to school, your parents give you money and then you don't have parents. You know what I mean? Like, so it was like, I would burn through a thousand dollars in a week and my dad would be like, what the hell? You know what I mean? And like, but there was just no restrictions on it. Um, and it was around that time that, it, that um, you know, I was drinking and smoking pot was kind of the extent of it where that stuff started happening on a daily basis. Um, And then I would say it progressed maybe through my undergrad by my junior or senior year in college. um, I really started to do this thing that alcoholics do 
alcohol. I'm a drug, a- I'm alcoholic drug addict. That's how I identify. I started doing the, that thing that a, a lot of us do where I just couldn't even show up for the day. You know what I mean? Or maybe I'd show up and start walking down the street to my class. And then I'd be like, I'm just going home and I'm going to drink. You know what I mean? That started happening here and there. And then in graduate school, that started happening a lot. And I was in graduate school and I was a teaching assistant and I was supposed to be teaching undergrads, horn methods. um, And I wasn't showing up to classes that I was supposed to teach. And my professors started being like, what is going on here? Um, So that's kind of how it progressed um, for me. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Yeah. Absolutely. So how how quickly did you end up hitting your bottom? Because I always tell people, I think that was one of the things that made me very hesitant about coming into recovery is I would look at other people and I'd be like, I'm not like you. You know, I'm not the stereotypical alcoholic or drug addict that lives on the street. Right. I've yeah. always I had periods in my life where I was definitely not a functioning alcoholic or drug addict, but there was Mm -hmm. definitely times where it's like I could keep it together for the most part, other than not showing up for the people that were important to me. So, you know, I was really hesitant to come into recovery because I didn't think I had a problem. And Mm -hmm. when did that happen for you? When were you like, okay, I need to change? And what did that look like? Yeah, I mean, there was kind of two versions of that because I've, I've, I'm, I'm one of the very much unfortunate people in recovery that had a relapse after six years of sobriety. So the first time around that looked like graduate school, just what I was saying, not showing up to classes I was supposed to teach, having difficulty. I was actually playing professionally as a musician at the time. And I could show up, but I was really struggling with my performance, you know, and when you're playing professionally, you're kind of expected to, to play well. Um, and, um, you know, without getting into to deep, dark, you know, stories and, and things like that, just things were just not going well. And I was really like any day that I that I didn't have something like specific, like a gig, I would just stay home in my apartment and drink and not do anything productive. Um, So I eventually got into AA. I got a foundation in the 12 steps. It took me a couple of months of relapsing and things like that. And I got, I had a pretty quick and pretty strong experience in in the 12 steps of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, And that's still a foundation in my life. And that got me sober for about six years. The problem is halfway through that, I don't know if it was complacency. I never really shook the the depression and anxiety, that restless, irritable and discontent that we were talking about. I never really overcame that. And my life was like moderately good. You know, I was sober, much happier not drinking, but it just wasn't what it was supposed to be. And I fell into uh, what I consider to be pretty deep depression. Um, and I was actually working a full-time job at the time, uh, working with my dad. He's, he was a financial planner. And I was the same thing happened. What happened was what was happening, drinking. I was sober and I couldn't, I, I would like wake up in the morning and I would just call in sick. Like I just couldn't face the day, but I was sober. You know what I mean? So it was like I was having a hard time just functioning sober. Uh, eventually, I relapsed. Um, and then that that kind of went into about a year and a half 
of, you know, kind of coming back in, in, in and out. And then eventually I started doing cocaine. I started doing um, opiates and um, started doing drugs, IV. It just, it was like, I had six years of sobriety. It went away. And then when I came back to it really quickly, it was wor worse than ever. And so I would say the darkest part of my, my using happened in that period. And it was not, I was waking up and staying home and drinking all day. It was, I would leave the house and I was married at this point. Um, I, I, and we had a young child. Um, I, um, I would leave the house and fall off the face of the planet for a couple of weeks in hotels, using all that stuff. And my parents and my wife were out of their mind, you know, not sure if I was okay. And I would check in every now and then, then I'd come home and, and get some rest. And then I'd go back out. And it was like, I did that for about three or four months. It was the worst time in my whole entire life. And um, just long story short, I ended up at a, at a really good treatment center up here in New Hampshire. Um, and um, luckily they were able to like pull me out of the, the gates of hell and bring me back into recovery. Um, you know, some of which was the 12 steps and, and some, some of which was like yoga and meditation and all that stuff. And um, I had a couple of relapses. I lived in sober living. Eventually I got it. And then this time around, I've, I'm now 11 years sober. I'll be 12 years sober in July. I no longer have that restless, irritable and discontent, that severe depression, that anxiety. My recovery is good and my life is good. Um, so it's very different this time around. Um, so I don't know if that makes uh, that kind of a long explanation for your question, but that's those are the two iterations of me getting into recovery. And I love the, the first part of your journey, right? Getting six years in, and I see it with a lot of people, right? They come into the program, they <clears throat> build their life again, they start to get their family back, things are going well. But just like with me, I remember after my first year, I was like, I got this. Like, yep. you know, this isn't how, this is easy to stay sober, right? But I started to get complacent and it's a huge word and it probably contributes to my purpose even more is that after that five, six year mark, I think we are, when we put our minds to something, I mean, you think about the energy, right, mm -hmm. that we put into getting loaded. And this is why it's always fun for me to talk to people in recovery that say struggle with weight loss. It's like, well, I don't have the willpower. I don't have the energy to do it. And I'm like, if someone told you you couldn't have a drink, would mm -hmm. you accept that as an answer, right? And yeah. so I think for me, why I haven't experienced relapse yet, and I came... I would say I could have come potentially very close because after the five, six year mark, I too was like, man, is this it? Like, am I just supposed to work a Monday to Friday job for the rest of my life? And I, is this all I get from all of this work that I've done? And it was then, thank goodness, that I started to reach out to other people who were actually entrepreneurs and in recovery. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? Like, what is keeping you so happy? And part of why I wrote the book Beyond Recovery, because there is so much more than mm. just building that foundation. I think that's the key to getting sober. Yeah. But to stay sober, there has to be more in there, you know, and a, a lot of people drop off after the five and six year point. So when you finally the second time around and you got it and congrats on coming up to 12 years in July, that's awesome. Thank you. 
Um, you know, what did you do? What did you start doing differently that you weren't doing the first time around? Yeah, um, that's interesting question, because you got me thinking about, um, like surrender in step three, and then and how we, um, you know, get to that point where we're like, is, is am I destined to work a nine to five, that kind of thing? Uh, I mean, it honestly, the, the, the biggest thing that happened with me at the beginning, the second time around was a really, really deep surrender in the third step. So in other words, I, I, I didn't make any, so this is contrary to what I eventually came around to, but like I started with no plans, like literally living in a sober house, working in a diner as a dishwasher. And everybody was like, just focus on your recovery, Russell. You know what I mean? Don't make any plans. Um, our little plans and designs, this talks about it in the, in the big book. Um, Cause I always did, I'd get sober and then I'd have all these plans and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, I would do a bunch of things, get stressed out. And then, you know, like, so, so um, that's where it started. And I, I kind of, um, what happened with me is I, I'm living in a sober house. I'm not making any plans. I'm working in a diner and I'm going to meetings every night. And then the guy that owned the sober house, and at this point, my family wanted distance from me because I had done some damage. Um, and so I was just doing my thing and like trying to get this recovery thing. Um, and I started, the guy that owned the sober house that I lived in was like, you're doing good. I've been, I had been doing good for a couple of months. He was like, I want you to sponsor anybody that comes in the house. And I just started working with a bunch of people in recovery. It was just 12 step work that we were doing. And I started to notice this thing where I was like, am I sponsoring them? It almost feels like I'm kind of like being a counselor, you know what I mean? And I enjoyed doing that work. So I recognized that I wanted to, to help people. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, your original question. I mean, we can go a little bit deeper into that trajectory, but um, I think the biggest difference for me was really starting with that surrender, really coming to a place where I realized the main problem was my restless, irritable and discontent, not, not the drink and the drugs. My, in fact, what, what shifted for me in the, in the treatment center that I went to, a guy said to me, Russell, you don't have a drinking problem. You have a sober problem. And all of a sudden I, and I was like, and I had been in the 12 steps and in program for quite a while at that point. And I was like, what do you mean by that? Can you, can you explain that? And he's saying like, your problem is you get sober and you don't feel, you don't, you're not okay. That's the problem. And so eventually you're always going to go back to that thing that makes you feel better. And it just something about the way that he said that, um, kind of, it, it's like when somebody says something and it turns your world upside down, my whole perspective on recovery changed because I realized it was about health and wellness and the sober person and, and the things that I had to do. So going out there and cultivating a healthy lifestyle was what I needed to do if I expected to, to stay sober. It wasn't about trying to control people, places and things and the drink and all that stuff. Um, and I found that in holistic spiritual practices, you know, so that's what changed. And so now when I wake up in the morning, I wake up when the alarm goes off and I don't feel like, you know what, 
um, and I'm happy to be alive. It doesn't mean I'm never stressed out. It doesn't mean I don't get upset. It just means that on a day-to-day basis, I don't have that inner condition sober anymore. Um, And that's what changed the second time around. Yeah, and I can relate to that feeling. I mean, you know, up until about a month and a half ago, I was still working my corporate job. But because I was also doing what I loved, which is Mm -hmm. coaching and working with other people, um, I had this desire to wake up every day. And I think the difference, because I still, you know, struggle with anxiety and depression. I mean, it creeps back. But today I can actually, before I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel, right? As soon as that depression set in, I was like dark. I could only see dark. Today I know that, okay, this is just a period of my time where I'm going to go through this. I have to go through the emotions. I talk to people. I use the tools right back in early recovery that I've learned. But I know that there's a better life waiting for me. So when you got into counseling and stuff, and you know, we talked about this briefly before we started the interview, but um, I find a lot of people that come into recovery, they start working at a recovery house, they become counselors. Um, they get burnt out really quickly, right? Yeah. Because I mean, I think for me, I enjoy the the coaching side of it because you're actually taking those people that are in recovery now and helping them do the really cool things that lie beyond recovery. Yeah. Um, what was that journey like for you? Because I know you experienced that as well. Yeah, and I went through, I mean, and everything was good. I'm feeling good on the inside. I'm sober again you know, the last 11 years have been great, but I've also went through a journey of, uh, of pain, um, you know, working in the addiction field, working as a counselor, but I want to make clear, and I'll tell you a little bit about that. I want to make clear that my pain, I think it a little bit has to do with working in, in the, the clinical world of addiction treatment, but I think there's only a, a, a percent that that's, true with that it's for for me the truth that i have come to because i saw it not only when working in in the addiction in 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 the clinical world but also when i was working with my dad in financial planning which was the deeper truth for me is i just really do not like regular nine to five monday through friday i don't like being an employee i don't like um you know working and working and waiting and for that one week of vacation that I have in July. And then the next week that I have in November or whatever, I just don't like that, that feeling of, um, of that restriction of a job. Um, so that's really my deeper truth, but I'll, but I'll tell you my journey from, so I'm working, I'm, I'm living in the sober house. I'm helping people. I really start to enjoy it. Everybody said, well, Russell, if you want to be a counselor, you have to go to graduate school to get a, a, a master's degree in counseling and then become licensed and then you can work in the field. And so, and I had a, an inkling back then that, that maybe what I really wanted to do was like coaching, like spiritual coaching or recovery coaching. And I even looked into a graduate program that was kind of like, like spiritual psychology with life coaching. And I was like, oh my God, that sounds awesome. But I went the practical route of a traditional clinical counseling degree um, because everybody was like, you need to be licensed to help people. Turns out not to be true, by the way. You need to be licensed to do clinical work with people, but you do not need a license or a certification for that matter to do coaching. 
doesn't mean you have, it doesn't mean you like, you shouldn't be careful about how you practice with people. But so I went to graduate school, I got a direct care job in a post detox program. And I hit the floor. <laughs> um, and with gung ho about being in recovery and thinking that I have had this personal experience that everybody else is going to is going to respond to me the same way. And I realized really quickly in the in the industry that the clients not all of them were there for the right reasons. Not all of them wanted to be there. Not all of them wanted to hear what I had to say. So, but I'm in graduate school and I'm, I kept telling myself, well, maybe the next job will get better. And then I became a case manager because I didn't have a master's degree yet. Then I got a master's degree and I became a, a, a I actually became a clinician working in outreach and mental health. All incredibly rewarding experiences all of which completely overwhelmed and burnt me out in working. It was just like, like I, it was, there was too much. Like if you had given me a caseload of like three or four people to work with rather than 10 or 20 or 30 um, and like crisis after crisis, then I'd be able to handle that. So I, I knew pretty early on that I was that, um, there was signs and I'm in recovery. So sometimes I don't see these things. I don't, I don't make sense of them enough to like change quickly enough. You know what I mean? Like, by the way, I'm, I'm working through that in my life, but it was like, I continued on this path for four or five, six years thinking, okay, then when I get my license, I'll can be a supervisor and then I can do this. And I kept telling myself this lie that the next job was going to be the one. And, and, you know, I'll have more control and they'll pay me better and all that stuff. And I eventually ended up as the clinical director of, of a substance abuse treatment pro program, which was when I think about it was like by far one of the best jobs that I had, they paid me well, they were doing 12 step work. They're all really good. And I'm incredibly grateful for that experience. Um, but I hit the same wall, which was, I didn't like the, the confines of a job and doing clinical work and then not only that, but now managing and supervising a team of clinicians, I hit that same wall for myself that it was it was burnout and overwhelm really quickly. And I realized, and again, it wasn't because of them. It was my own experience. I, I realized that I desperately needed more control over my life and I needed to figure some figure out some way to use my helping skills that wasn't as intense and would give me that freedom and I could structure it in a way that still paid me well. Um, so that's the wall that I hit. The solution to that was, was learning how to leverage and structure a coaching package that would allow me to do work with people, not that, that were, acutely ill with active addiction or mental health issues, but people that maybe they were in recovery, maybe they weren't, they wanted to level their lives up and I can help them do that. And the work would be less intense. They would want to be there more so than when I was doing clinical work. I more so wanted to work with them and the work was just more rewarding. That became a wellness coaching program that I started about a year ago, which you're familiar with because that's when you and I were in that in the group program with Mark. Um, that's what I started. So that's kind of that, that was my journey. And then once I realized 
once I realized I could actually make a living as a coach, I was like, oh my God, my life, it was like the last, it was like the pinnacle of wellness for me was self-actualization. The fact, me going out and starting my own business and having control over my life and still getting paid well. And um, it was like this level of freedom in my life that I'm like, I, I really do, don't think I will ever go back to a job. Like I just look as much as it, that can, my business can be stressful sometimes. Um, it's just, my life is way better this way. So. Yeah. yeah. I agree. I mean, I can't now, and I've only, you know, a month and a bit in, I can't yeah. imagine going back to that. But I think you made a really good point that you absolutely nailed was that, <clears throat> and you hear this with a lot of people who are in that field, when you're helping people get into recovery, right, and, and make that transition, a lot of people who go into treatment don't want to be there. Yeah. Right. And, you know, there's I, I have people ask me all the time, like, hey, I know somebody that's in active addiction. They, you know, we try to help. And I know for myself personally, I had to hit a point where I actually wanted to get better. And so I think that, you know, making that transition, like you notice that it's like, OK, a lot of these people don't want to be here. Right. And you do get excited when you do get, you know, I don't think we ever necessarily have recovery because I think we could lose it very quickly if we revert yep. back into our old behaviors. But I mean, we want people to get to where we are because it's like, hey, I've been through the same thing as you are. I know how you feel like you could be here. And if you don't want to be there, then you're, you're not even going to listen. So, yep. you know, starting your own business now, I like how you talk about, you know, marketing and sales because you've made even transitions in your business since yep. we've known each other. Um, that, you know, marketing and sales, everybody looks at as evil. I mean, I've mm -hmm. been in the sales industry for a long time and there's sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, I don't want to do that. Yeah. And you don't have to. So can you get into that part of your business? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's really cool. And I love it. I, I actually, it's so weird. I love sales and I'm not even really that good at it, to be honest <laughs> with you. Like I, I, I need to continually get coaching around, around that. But um, I, I def I did, I had to go, I had to go out and sort of geek out on how do you start a business? How do you market it, a coaching business? Um, and so I did a lot of learning and, and some coaching, as you know, around that. Um, and eventually my wellness program, I realized there was other people like me that were in a job, maybe in the mental health field that could benefit from moving to a coaching model um, and that I was uniquely qualified since I had been, you know, relatively successful doing it to show them how to do it. Um, so my business became helping people launch um, a, a holistic, or, you know, coaching business spiritually. You know, it doesn't have to be that way, but so a, a helping oriented coaching business uh, and how to market how to market that by finding their ideal client and, and, you know, having conversations and having a sales process that moves them into your program. So many people want, are, they become coaches, but they don't know how to actually get clients. Um, so to just on, in terms of, of the sales process and, you know, people that might shy away from that, I had to learn that it was a genuine process of connecting with somebody that you're uniquely qualified to help having a genuine conversation with them. And if, and only if 
you can actually help them, then you suggest a call to help them that may or may not, they may or may not be aware at that point that you have a program. You know what I mean? Sometimes I get on a sales call and we can call it a sales. Let's call it what it is. You know what I mean? A, a helping an enrollment call, whatever you want to call it. Sometimes I get on and they don't know and I help them anyways. And then if they want a, more information about my coaching, then we'll get on a second call or we'll do it on that call. Um, but I get there on, on the call from a genuine conversation that I had with them around a problem that they're having in their life, which in my case would be a lot of times it's the problem is I'm a clinician, I'm burnt out, I'm overwhelmed. I don't, maybe I got into the wrong field, you know? So, um, and I had to learn how to do that in a non-spammy way because so many people are afraid to do the marketing and sales part because they don't want to be that person. You know, like somebody, you add them as a friend and then the next thing you know, they're like, hey, let me tell you about my whatever. You know what I mean? That's the next conversation. Um, don't get me wrong. I initiate and I have multiple conversations with prospects for my coaching on a daily basis in text format, usually in messenger. Um, but there's always a point of contact there. It's not, hi, I'm Russell. Do you want to join my coaching program? You know what I mean? It's a, there's a genuine conversation. And when it looks like they're not interested in talking to me anymore, I stop, you know what I mean? Like I'm not pushing it. I'm, I'm trying to connect with people. So I think people get that. And there's a real subtle art to that. Um, and at the end of the day, if you're, this happens to me all the time um, where I'm on a call with somebody and they, they'll, they're thinking about doing coaching, but they're, they struggle with the marketing part of it. I don't think I could do that part of it. And I say, you know, that you and I are on this call right now through my own process of marketing and sales. Right. And they'd be like, oh yeah, that's right. And I'm, and I ask them, does it, were you, did you feel forced into this conversation with me? And they'd be like, well, no. And I'd be like, well, that's what, that's what it is. Then I'm only on calls with people that are actually genuinely interested in work, potentially working with me. So it's about learning how to do that. Um, and I just became fascinated with that because it's so cool. It's like, it's a genuine approach to somebody that you can help and a conversation. And then if you identify their problem and that's something you can solve, you present the solution to them and then it's their choice whether to join with you or not. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah. And, and there is an art to it, right? I mean, I've always told, you know, give them value. And then yeah. at that point, if they seem like a suitable client, and I think, you know, you have to make sure that, you know, in both of our position that we also work with someone who's serious because you find a lot of people that they kind of want the coaching, but at the same time, they don't want to do the work. You ask how important it is. They can't answer a 10 and it's like, hey, listen, like it doesn't yeah. matter what I do. If you're not open to learning new things, you're not going to retain any of this. And I think yeah. that's the cool part about where we are today is that you know, I love learning. I'm always, I'm geeking out too. Like I've probably yeah. got, you know, five windows right now open of just webinars that I'm going to catch up on today yeah. because I love doing that stuff. But another area that I like to talk about is boundaries. And I know that 
I think that's important not only in your personal life, but also your professional life because boundaries were a real tough thing for me. I was always a yes person. I was always a people pleaser. I wanted to make everybody happy, right? Because that would, you know, then that meant I was loved. So why don't we get into that a little bit? Because I think it is important not only to have boundaries in your personal life and be able Mm -hmm. to say no, because no is actually a very empowering word when you use it in the right context. But it's also important as an entrepreneur to be able to have boundaries as well. Yeah. So, yes, this is um, such an important thing. Um, I mean, having boundaries with a job, really, really tough. It's always a supervisor, a boss, staff, whatever, pulling you one way or another. So it's a little bit easier when you have your own business to do this. Um, And... I guess I would look at it a couple of couple ways. One is the way that I structure a coaching program. I don't have 20 clients that are pulling on my attention. It's not more than five sometimes. So it's way easier. And I just find their, their need for attention from me is, is less. So it's easier. Like, if I see a message, some, they do have a degree of access to me in between coaching sessions. If I see a message from them, um, I'm not burnt out all day. So replying at eight o'clock at night doesn't make me angry like it would if I had multiple, you know, that kind of thing. So it's a little bit easier. And then the other thing I would say is I have people do something called a not need list when they start coaching with me. So they, they do a, a, a format, you and I are familiar with this, um, where you, you, you sort of outline what you, where you want to go, what you want your life to look like, what you want, what's the essence of that. I have people I, write like a list of like, what are the things that you, can, you no longer can put up with in your life? That you're going to, if you can, unless it means your children will starve or something like that, you will say no. You know what I mean? Um, and I think it's really important whether or not a person's in that position to actually say no, to be aware of what those things are. Um, and God, I think over the last year, one, I'll just give you a very simple example. As soon as I stepped down from my position as a clinical director in a substance abuse treatment program, I have received, and I'm not saying this to brag. I mean, it was like, I'm honored that people would think of me. I've gotten seven or eight different offers to be a clinical director in treatment centers and really, really good ones, some really good ones. Um, And on my not need list, my no list, unfortunately, is jobs and clinical work right now. I just, I haven't recovered enough to go back to clinical work at this point. I don't know if I ever will. I like the coaching model. So I've had to say no to those things. And that's part of my boundaries. And I, I, I reverted briefly uh, on a consulting job to get into the mix of directly supervising a program for about a month and a half in the fall. And it was a great opportunity. And I loved the people that I worked with in the program that we set up, but I was brought back in. I was, it affirmed my, my no list 
that I need to say no or renegotiate something like that if I ever do something like that again. Um, so boy, boy, can, like, it's like when you're in the thick of not being able to say no and not having good boundaries, you, it's, it's like you don't even know the pain that you're in. But then when you start to have the confidence and the strength to not do the things that don't resonate with you, it's like this level of personal freedom. It just like completely blows your mind. And you think you're going to starve to death, but you don't because then you have plenty of time to do what you need to do to learn the things that, you know, implement the business that tomorrow's teaching you how to implement, you know what I mean? And you make it work. Um, so it's just so, so important to have those boundaries and know what you, what you want and what you don't want. I think not knowing what you don't want is almost as important as knowing what you want. I know there's some like conflicting views about that, but I need a list in front of me that says, Russ, don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. And then you'll be okay. And you can go hiking this afternoon. You know what I mean? <clears throat> yeah, it is really, it's, you know, I think about any decision or choice that I make now, I'm like, does this align with my ultimate purpose and vision in life? If That's it's a, a no, one. I say no, and I have no problem doing that anymore. Even if someone's like, why not? I'm like, well, because it's not going to get me any closer to where I want to be tomorrow, right? I'm going to pick what's going to get me ahead. So if there were, if there is some advice that you could give, because I talk to a lot of people who are kind of in that complacency stage, they feel like they're meant for more because we are, even though many of us I'm learning, I'm both an introvert and an extrovert. I yep. love my own personal time now more than ever that I've actually learned to love myself. But someone who's fearful of getting started because I was, right? I was always scared to invest in myself. I'm like, well, that costs a little bit of money. And I'm thinking, look how much I have spent on Amazon alone. I'm sure that, you know, I've given them way, way, way more money than I've ever spent in personal development. I've spent a lot now. But for someone who's at that point where they feel like they need to make that change, but they're too scared to, what would be that advice you would give them? Yeah. I mean, God, like how much, the last four, how much did it cost? The last four iPhones did you have? And you're not willing, how much was the car that you just bought? Um, and yet coaching and, and creating something, whatever you're interested in, um, that's not worth a little bit of money. And then I, I so, but I would just say, so it's like, I don't know what that is. I deal with it all the time. I, people are like, yes, Russ, this is perfect. This is exactly what I do. I tell them how much it costs. And then they're, they, they, they get freaked out. So I don't know what that's all about. I do know my own personal experience and I'm going to just put this to rest right now. Um, which is i made almost zero money in my own business. Um, until I started doing coaching. You saw this firsthand. I made my first money as a coach last March when you and I were in a group coaching program mm -hmm. and the coach was like, Russell, get off your ass and go promote your thing. And I did it. And then I made, I made some decent money doing that. Um, so I'll just say that. And then I did calculation recently and I've spent money on coaching since then um, a good amount. I've, calculated that for every dollar that I've spent on, on coaching, not courses, course will help you. I'm talking, maybe there's a course, but, but I'm talking somebody who wants, who's done what I want to do, showing me 
the subtleties of exactly how to do that. Um, I, for every dollar that I've spent on coaching, I've made $3 back. So I don't know what to say other than just be, you know, don't get me wrong. If you're talking to a coach and you don't feel right about it, don't spend the money. You know what I mean? Um, and be honest with them about it. But it's just, um, if you find the right coaching for you, it will change your life. 100% agree. And, you know, I might, I have two coaches, I have a hypnotherapist, like, there's all these different aspects of my life that I want to improve, right? I want to make sure that I'm able to provide my clients with the best, best guidance possible, right? And like you said, that's through our experience, right? We can sit across the table from someone that's struggling and say, I know I've been there too, right? I know exactly what you're going through, because we're living this journey as we teach it. So Russell, how can people get a hold of you if they want to learn more about what you do? Yeah, I mean, the best, the, the honest to God, best way is to connect with me in Facebook. Um, Russell Beebe, two L's, B-E-E-B-E. -E -E. Um, you could also just send me an email uh, at uh, Russell at thewellnessseekers.com. Um, but if you, if you connect with me, um, either by a cold messenger message or, you know, friend request, that kind of thing. Um, if you see my profile, um, there's some, there's a website in there too. You can connect with me through that. Um, that's the best way to, to connect. Awesome. And we'll make sure that's all in the show notes so people yeah. can go there too and just click away. But uh, thank you so much for finally being on the show. It was so great yeah. to chat with you. Absolutely. It was fun. Thank you. It's good, good, great topics. Such a great show. Loved Russell's story. I love what he's doing for people. And if you want to learn more, head on over to the show notes and you can get in touch with him. And yeah, guys, if you haven't booked a discovery call or a business audit session, maybe you're someone that's looking to discover your purpose. You know, you don't have that clear direction. Book a 30 minute free discovery call with me. Or if you're someone that's an entrepreneur, maybe you're just starting off, maybe, you know, you need some help overcoming some of those limiting beliefs, those roadblocks that are stopping you from growing your business to the degree that you would like to, you can go ahead and book a free business audit session and I'm happy to brainstorm with you. So head on over to the show notes, book those calls today, and I will see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Road Beyond Recovery. Did you know that our dreams can become a reality? When you determine your purpose in life and you allow that purpose to guide you, anything is possible. It just takes action. Don't wait until you're ready. Start to create the life you were truly meant to live right now. I am super passionate about my mission to help people live up to their true potential. So if you want to learn more, check out my website at www.theroadforward.ca. And until next week, keep exploring what lies beyond recovery for you.